you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm going to do something a little different tonight. You know, usually we come to Good Friday. And, you know, Good Friday is such an exciting time. You know, it's, it's, it's such a triumphal day. You know, there's just great rejoicing. You know, the hope of the people, they're expressing it in praise and adoration. But I want to move us further into the week. You know, I want to move us to that Thursday. I want to move us to that moment when Jesus was now with his disciples. They're in the upper room. He's been chatting with them. He's explaining to them that he's about to die. How many know that that's a little bit uh, something they did not expect? They didn't want to hear this. They were overwhelmed with sorrow over what he was explaining to them. And Jesus himself is now addressing his own emotional needs. And so they move away from the upper room and they go to a place called Gethsemane. It's a beautiful area. Um, there's still olive trees there in Jerusalem today, but I think it was probably far more, uh, the, it was far larger in the time of Christ. It was outside the city walls. It was a beautiful garden with all of these trees. And that's where Jesus many times retired to spend time in prayer. And so he leads his disciples to this area. That's what we want to talk about tonight. Robert McFarlane was a well-known businessman in the Los Angeles area, and he moved there from Oklahoma to, uh, in the, 19, the year 1970. And when he, when he arrived, he had invested a lot of money in a, an insurance company, and so there was a lot of misunderstanding. How many have ever had those moments in your life where there's been miscommunication? And what you thought and what you experienced are two different things. You know, one of our staff this week was sharing a YouTube clip. You know, he's explaining this trust fall. How many of you ever know what a trust fall is? You know, uh, you just have to learn to trust somebody. They'd have you stand here, close your eyes, and then somebody behind you kind of, you know, supposedly is going to catch you, right? And so they were taping this on the YouTube, and all of a sudden, the, the father says to the child, go ahead, and the child fell forward, <laughs> flat on their face. That's what I call miscommunication. Anyways, Robert had gone through this really difficult moment. There's miscommunication. And by the spring of 1973, he had actually had to take over the company and spent three years in a time of constant strain and stress in the operation of this business, trying to put it back on its feet. He had recently become a believer in answer to his wife Betty's prayers. And on one day in spring, with the continued frustration, challenges, uh, just even dealing with his own uh, angst and anger because he felt betrayed and, you know, the miscommunication, and he was just overwhelmed. And so as he was driving to work that day, facing probably another day of futility and fear and having to accomplish a whole mass of, you know, tasks that were necessary, and as he was driving to his office, he was suddenly filled with a frantic urge to drive out of town and leave for good. You know, anybody ever had that experience when you just go, life is so difficult, I wish I could just, you know, the psalmist says, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would flee, you know, I'd run away, you know, and sometimes we have those moments in our life where we just feel like we just can't handle it anymore, we just want to run, and he was having one of those moments, and that urge was so strong, and yet there was another element that happened at that moment, there was a sense in his soul that he needed to pull over to the side of the road. So he pulled over to the side of the road and all of a sudden this innermost, in his innermost being he heard the voice of God. He heard not, not an audible voice but this deep impression and the, and the words came like this. He said, my son had strains that you will never know and when he had those moments of stress and difficulty he turned to me and that's what you need to do now. 
And so having heard those words, Robert just opened up his soul to God and began to cry out to God and sob and weep and pour out all of the stuff that was on the inside of his innermost being. And as he did that, you know, that, that's very cathartic, by the way. That, there's a, such a release that came into his spirit and eventually he collected himself. He drove to work and that day he faced 22 major decisions. But while he was doing that, he had this amazing sense of joy and peace and serenity and wisdom. And the day went through and finally many things that had been, you know, up in the air and were difficult were now coming to an end and there was resolution in many of them. And so like Robert McFarland, maybe you're here today and you're struggling with some incredible internal challenge. Life today has never been more stressful. And maybe some of you, you feel it right now. Do you know technology promises to make life easier? Isn't that interesting? And you know what's the reality is? Sometimes technology has made life more complex. You know, I remember when email first came in. It wasn't this supposed to be a great help. And now everybody kind of hates, you know, email because when you open it up, there's all of these things you got to respond to. It's, you know, it was meant to be making life quicker and easier, and it's actually sometimes made things more challenging and more difficult. One more thing that needs to be done in our day, communicating with those that are getting a hold of us far quicker than ever. Often our struggles come in terms of human relationships. And that's probably where a lot of angst happens in our soul. Isn't that true? You know, misunderstanding. How am I going to deal with this person? I got difficult relational issues. And, uh, you know, that can happen at work. You know, maybe there's somebody there that you have to address as a boss. Or maybe there's somebody, a coworker that's driving you absolutely crazy and you don't know what to do about this person. You know, there's just, we could go on and on and talk about all the relational tensions. We could talk about marriage difficulties. Man, those are probably the most challenging because, you know, you're, you're there 24-7. There's, you're not getting away from this thing. And so it's there haunting your mind. And then probably the greatest battle in life are the battles within our own soul, where we're at in our innermost being you know, conflicted sometimes. We, maybe sometimes we, we, we don't really have a, maybe a proper estimation of who we are. Maybe we're battling with insecurities and fears and doubts and, and uh, you know, maybe there's something pushing and threatening and so we just feel overwhelmed on the inside and folks, that's where the major battle is being fought. It's not happening around us, it's what's happening within us. And especially when we know that the right thing to do is gonna have to be done at great personal cost and sacrifice. Do you know, that's a hard decision. And how many people shy away from doing the right thing when they know it's not gonna be the easy thing? And so a lot of times we don't wanna do anything. And how many know doing nothing is also a decision? Did anybody figure that out yet? No decision is a decision. But people don't always think that way. But it's the truth. And so there's this battle going on on the inside. And so I want to take a look tonight at that Jesus actually experienced this amazing battle within. And how many here would like to say, you know, Pastor, if I could just get a handle on what's going on inside of my soul, it feels so challenged and churning and conflicted and frustrated. And I want to take a look at a moment in the life of Jesus that he actually reveals to us. The scriptures reveal to us what's happening within Christ. And it's found in the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. You know the word Gethsemane means oil press. And we're going to go into what that means in greater detail in a few moments. The oil press is actually a process in the time of Christ where they gathered olives and they placed them under huge stones. And they gave up oil. 
And it's interesting that Jesus talked about being uh, sorrowful even to death. You know, the Apostle Paul said it, you know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that he despaired even of life. I mean, that talks about some sort of intensity, doesn't it? And don't tell me people don't experience this, because you know, when I read about people committing suicide, what is that? That they're despairing of life. They just don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn. They're at a loss. And yet there is an answer. Even at that point in our life, there is an answer. There is a way out. And not that way. A better way. And I want to talk about that tonight. How did Jesus come to the place where he was willing to surrender to his Father's will? And you have to remember now, Jesus is about to carry on himself the weight of the sin of all of humanity for all time. How many know, can you imagine the burden of carrying that load on your soul? That, that's mind-boggling. The sin of every human being. All of the guilt, all of the, the terrible things. Jesus is prepared to carry that, but probably even greater than that was the idea that from all of eternity he had fellowship with the Father. For this moment of time, he was gonna lose that continuous, sweet fellowship with his father. He was going to become sin. It's a very amazing thought. Jesus was meditating on this point. And how did Jesus come to that place where he could surrender? How did he gain the strength and courage to do God's will, even though he knew it would cost him everything? How did Jesus overcome the temptation to abandon God's purpose for his life? And how can we learn from Jesus' example and overcome the battles that are raging within our own soul? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. So I'm going to look at three elements to gaining victory over our own internal conflict. Or, you know, I've entitled the sermon, The Conflicted Soul. How do we handle it when our soul is raging in internal conflict? Anybody want to discover this? Yeah, wouldn't that be helpful? As a matter of fact, I'm going to suggest tonight that, you know what, what I'm going to share is going to actually help you in moments of crisis. And let's just face it. You know, I'd like to say to everyone, you'll never have another crisis in your life. But that wouldn't be the truth, would it? And you know, the reality is, are we ready? And when crisis comes, how are we going to respond to it? Tonight, I want to give you some tremendous keys that come from the life of Jesus. We can look at his example, and I believe we can face the conflict, the, 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 the challenges, the crisis that may come into our lives that we have no idea that's about to unfold, and we can handle it with dignity, with joy, with calmness, and actually, we can walk through it and not be crushed by it. Okay, let's take a look at the first one. If we're gonna overcome this internal conflict in ourselves, we need to give ourselves to prevailing prayer. What do you mean by prevailing prayer, Pastor? Well, we need to persist in our praying until we come to the place of resignation and surrender to God's will. That's what I mean about prevailing prayer. We pray, in a sense, as the old saints would describe, as praying through. We pray until we come to that place where we can resign ourselves to say, Lord, whatever you desire, whatever your will is, I'm good with it. I can handle that. I've come to that place of absolute surrender. That's really praying to a certain point, isn't it? And we're gonna take a look at how important that really is. You know, the temptation is always present to forsake God's plan. You see, you have to understand, you know, when we become a believer, we enter a war. 
And that war continues until the day we're with Christ. And so we're going to fight battle after battle after battle. I've been a Christian almost 40 years. I can tell you right now you're going to fight battles. There's just no way around this thing. And I'm trying to prepare you so that you can actually win those conflicts. And they're not conflicts outside, and they're not even with people. It's actually with your own soul and the enemy that's trying to, you know, somehow defeat your confidence in God. This is the victory, the Bible says, even our faith. To maintain confidence in God when everything around you says everything else, that's a victory. You know, one of our greatest enemies is actually, in many ways, knowing what to do in those situations. As a matter of fact, uh, John Owen, who is an old Puritan writer, he said this, however strong a castle may be, if a treacherous party resigns inside, ready to betray at the first opportunity possible, the castle cannot be kept safe from the enemy. How many go, that's obvious. I mean, if you've got a traitor from within, that can be, pose a great challenge and a difficulty for winning the conflict. And then he goes on to say this, traitors occupy our own hearts, ready to side with every temptation and to surrender to them all. Now, what is Owens really saying? I mean, he's written in the 1700s. He said, what he's really pointing out is that we are betrayed by our own human weaknesses and sinful propensities. In other words, we're the traitor. We can easily betray ourselves. And have we not done that in the past? Betrayed ourselves with some weakness, some sin? But this is no excuse because God has given us greater weapons to overcome, but we must be responsible to use these weapons. And what is the great weapon that God has given at our disposal? Our prayer, our communion with God our ability to communicate what's happening in our lives to God. It's an amazing thing. It's a powerful weapon. Prayer is described as a weapon when you read Ephesians chapter 6. As Paul is talking about the armor of God. He's, taught, he's, he's chained a Roman soldier. He's looking at the outfit beside him, and he describes, you know, prayer. You know, pray, pray, above all, pray. Isn't that amazing? He's, he's even asking for prayer. Prayer is a very powerful weapon in the Christian uh, life. Jesus experienced this in his own life. You know, the enemy came and tempted Jesus. We might remember the temptation that came to him in the wilderness when he was about to enter his earthly ministry there, found in Luke and Matthew 4, both the same chapter, it's interesting. Jesus is now led by the Spirit into the wilderness and the devil comes to him and he hasn't eaten in 40 days. How many know if you haven't eaten in 40 days, you're probably gonna get to a point of hunger. You know, a lot of times we think we're hungry, no, I'm serious. But if you miss food for a few days, you'll feel it. And then eventually, if you miss food for a few more days, you won't feel hunger anymore. There is a point after a while that you don't feel hunger. But then eventually your body starts communicating. You're hungry. And Jesus had gotten to that point, And it says, and after 40 days, the devil came at, the devil came at Christ's physically weakest moment. Okay. So it wasn't when he felt strong, it was when he felt the weakest. Isn't that kind of when temptation seems the strongest in our life is when we're at our weakest moment? And he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, if you're the son of God, turn these rocks into bread. And how did Jesus respond to this? He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now what was Jesus? He says, for it is written, Jesus is now quoting from Deuteronomy. This was actually one of the temptations in the wilderness that the Israelites had flunked. 
You know, they were begging for, you know, more than the manna. They wanted more from life. They wanted more of the good life. And isn't it true in our lives that we're always tempted to put the material thing of life far ahead of the spiritual element? Isn't that always true that there's a pressure that this, this life is craving and demanding our attention to the neglect of our spiritual soul? Isn't that the real temptation? And notice how Jesus overcame this temptation. The temptation was, if you are the son of God, prove yourself. Jesus said, I don't need to prove myself. I know who I am. And I'm really convinced as believers, when we know our identity in Christ, when we know who we really are, it's a lot easier to say no. I know who I am. I know who I represent. I can't do that. As a matter of fact, I'm making a choice to put the things of God ahead of the things of this world. That is a powerful statement. Jesus was tempted. But then we find in Luke's gospel this very interesting little statement at the end of the temptation. It says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. In other words, the devil is always lurking and his minions for the right moment to come into our lives when we're at a low point. That's when he's coming. You know, and Jesus is now in this garden, and this is a low point. He's conflicted, he's wrestling, he's, he's about to, you know, give his life away. There's a, you know, a tremendous uh, revulsion to what he's about to do. Low point, and the devil comes back. This is a very dark hour. And here we find in our text, Jesus is praying, and what are the disciples doing? They're sleeping. Now, I want to explain something. You know, we can be very quick at criticizing the disciples. Oh, what's wrong with these guys, you know? You know buck up, buddy. You only had to pray for a little while, you know? And, and Jesus, you know, we read here in Matthew 26, 36, it says, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And verse 39, he says, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground, and he prayed. And then in verse 42, he went a second time and prayed. In verse 44, it says, so he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Do you know it's interesting how olives become olive oil? You know, some of us, we had the privilege of being in Israel, and we go there, we go to this place called Nazareth Village, and they show us how they actually make olive oil 2,000 years ago. And they have a press. And the press goes something like this. In the middle, there's a kind of a big stone, and they attach a you know, huge uh, log and a donkey's hooked to it and the donkey is actually holding the weight of these two huge pieces of rock and so the, all, of the, all of the olives are poured onto a kind of a tray and then these huge stones above the tray are brought down by the donkey moving down and the press of the olive comes down and it squeezes the olives. And you know, it's interesting, they press olives not once, not twice, but three times. How many times did Jesus pray? Three times. Do you know the first pressing of the olives is the actual top quality olive oil? As a matter of fact, when you go to the store, it says extra pure virgin olive oil. What they're telling you is this is the best olive oil. This is that first pressing. This is, you know, the purest form of olive oil. It's the best for you. And in ancient times, that first pressing, they would take some of that olive oil and they would send it to the temple in Jerusalem. It was considered sacred oil. They used it to light the temple. They used it in some of their mixtures to make 
you know, the incense and all of that stuff in the temple services. Now, not all of it was used that way, but a lot of it was used that way. But then, you know, they'd lift the press. And then the second time, the press would come down and it would be released a little further and it would press more of the olive oil. And this was the oil that was used for the common person, everyday life for, you know, the little clay candles, you know, the little clay jars that they had, they burned their uh, lights from. They pour oil in there with a little wick and that's how they lit their homes. And they would use it for cooking oil. But then they would lift that press one more time and this time, the third time, they would let that press go all the way down, squeezing and crushing the olives so that, you know, the olive oil that wouldn't just run down the face of the side of a stone and be collected in a pool, but some of the actual skin of the olive and some of the meaty part of the olive would slip into the olive olive oil and that was considered the least favorable part of making olive oil and that part was usually used for making soap and I want you to know when Jesus was praying he was being crushed you know there's you know the Bible is really interesting how it uses images to teach us profound lessons Jesus was praying but while Jesus was praying he was being prepared to handle the biggest crisis that was about to happen in his life he was preparing for the future. He was preparing for a moment of great challenge and crisis. But the disciples, meanwhile, as I've already said, they were heavy with sorrow as well. And do you realize as human beings when we're struggling with difficulty and emotional uh, angst in our soul, do you realize how much uh, physical energy is being eaten up while we're dealing with emotional and mental pressures in our life? How many know that when you're depressed, many times you find yourself prone to sleep? That's one of the characteristics of deep depression is that you sleep a lot. You're not able to cope with life. Your, 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 your body is struggling to maintain some sort of equilibrium. And the disciples were trying to stay awake. How many have ever had those moments when, you know, somebody's waking, awoken you and you're trying to wake up but you're just not succeeding and you find yourself going back to sleep again? Anybody ever have that experience? You're trying to get going, but you just can't seem to get up. And these poor guys, Jesus would walk over and he would say to them, come on, get up, pray. And you know, they wanted to, but they went back to sleep. And we read in our text that Jesus said to them, the spirit is willing, but what? The flesh is weak. And so they were overcome with their own emotional pain. But you know what the problem was? When Jesus now is faced with the crisis, when Judas arrives with the crowd and he's about to be betrayed, Jesus now is in total command of the situation. How many realize that? He's under total self-control. Isn't that amazing? When I read the Gospels, you almost feel like Pilate's on trial and not Jesus. You know? Yeah, yes. But isn't that amazing? You know, here it is. Pilate says, you know, I could, I could have you killed. And Jesus said, you can't do anything unless my father allows it. You know, Jesus said, listen, you know, I could call 12 legions of angels and they'd come down and rescue me. Jesus was in complete control during the difficult moments of his life when he was being beaten, when he was being crucified. Jesus was prepared for that hour of severe crisis and testing in his life. But now I want you to notice the disciples. How did they respond to it? Peter whips out a sword, slices off, he missed, slices off the guy's ear, right? Jesus picks up the ear, puts it back on the guy and heals him. You know, and then the Bible says they all ran away. When Peter was asked by this little maiden in the courtyard, she says, aren't you one of his followers? Peter goes, never heard of the guy. I have no idea who he is. 
I'm not one of his disciples. And three times Peter denied Jesus. Do you know, it's interesting. When you and I are not in the right space in a time of testing, we fall apart. As a matter of fact, the human response to crisis is one of two things, fight or flight. And take a look at how these guys handled it. They fought and then they fled. And so often when we come into crisis, we're just having a meltdown. We're just not ready for that moment. Why? Because we have not been praying. We have not been like Jesus. We're not prepared for that moment. If you knew next week you were going to face the greatest crisis of your life, would you be ready for it? Would you be ready to face the greatest challenge you've ever faced? And the only way you could say to me, yes, I think I could be ready for that, is that you are spending time in God's presence. We know from our text that Jesus prayed, but we also know, uh, well, let me go back here. Why did I skip this? Uh, let me just stop and ask the question here. Well, are you ready for that battle that may lay just ahead? May you, are you prepared to walk in quiet confidence because you're engaged in prayer, preparing your soul for whatever may come your way? Or are you wearied and tired by the demands of life? We can be in a place where we're sleeping. But if we're praying, it's strengthening our innermost being. You know, this coming week, we've scheduled prayer and fasting. Now, if you're part of our church family, you'll say, Pastor, I see this up all the time. Three times a year, we have prayer and fasting in this church. That's nine times. That's not a lot, but it is significant because we do it periodically. Why do I do this to us? Because I really believe it's important that we have moments in our time where we stop and take a time out. How many here, you probably take your car once in a while to get the oil changed? Good, Rob, I know you do because you work for AMA. You know that that's a good thing to do, right? What happens when you neglect that for your vehicle? Eventually, that your car is not going to operate as well as it should. Eventually, if you keep neglecting that, what's going to happen to your vehicle? You're going to have mechanical failure. Isn't that true? Can I just say that if you and I neglect our prayer life, we're going to have spiritual failure? How many can see that? It's going to happen. And so we do this so that we can stop our busy lives, get off the merry-go-round, begin to say, Lord, I want to focus in on you, and I want you to kind of inventory me. Hopefully, it, it helps us get ourselves recalibrated spiritually so we're on track again. Yes, I'm doing what I should be doing. That's why I do it. That's why I have our church family do that, so we, we don't get so far off in this direction or that direction, but we're constantly, at times, periodically taking an inventory of our soul. Do you think that's important? I think it is. I think it's critical. Well, we know from our text that Jesus prayed, but we also discover the intensity by which he prayed from, from Luke's gospel. It says in verse 44, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, I want you to know that that's a very rare medical condition, but it's actually a medical condition. You can actually have this experience, and it's been recorded. As a matter of fact, one of the, uh, one of the doctors, uh, this guy by the name of Frederick Zugubi, who is a, a medical examiner in New York, he's basically said this, the clinical term is hematophydrophis. I don't know how to say that. But it's, thank you. Very good. We have a nurse. Around the sweat glands, there are multiple blood vessels that are net-like in form. And what happens under the pressure of great stress, the vessels begin to constrict. 
And then as the anxiety passes, the blood vessels dilate to the point of rupture. The blood goes into the sweat glands, and as the sweat glands are producing a lot of sweat, it pushes the blood to the surface, coming out as droplets of blood mixed with sweat. Now, I could just imagine some well-meaning Christians going, you know, Jesus, stop sweating it. Man, you've got to have more faith. You know, we have some very funny theology sometimes as Christians. It's just totally out to lunch in my books. It does not reflect biblical Christianity. When I take a look at some of the hardships and difficulty the early churches have gone through, and many of the people in our world today are suffering great hardship, I say to myself, you guys are out to lunch in your understanding of biblical Christianity. Think about this. Jesus was in anguish. You know, there, there can come moments in our lives where we are challenged to the very core of our being, and certainly Jesus was. Many of us may have never known this kind of intensity in prayer. I mean, I have never swapped, uh, sweated drops of blood in my prayer time. I can honestly say that. I've been a Christian all these years. I've never had that experience. But I do know this, that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and is effective. I know that prayer is dynamic. As a matter of fact, James goes on to say, Elijah was a man just like us, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And then it goes on to say, and he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced his crops. He prayed afterwards. Now, some of us can go, well, good, I can just tell God how to run the universe. No, it doesn't work that way. As a matter of fact, Elijah was a man who understood the covenant that God had made with his people. And he knew that they were in violation of that covenant. And one of the things that God said would happen under that covenant is if you sinned against God, God would withhold the reins. And so what Elijah did was pray that God would actually honor his word and begin to make people realize that they had violated his covenant. And that's why it stopped raining. Interesting, isn't it? And after the people had repented in 1 Kings chapter 18, and they'd cried out and they said, God is God. Remember, there was a confrontation on Mount Carmel. And the people repented. What did, what did Elijah do but go up on the mountain and started praying that rain would come? And God answered that prayer because the condition of God's renewed blessing was that the people would humble themselves and seek God's face, and then the return blessing would come. And so Elijah acted on that. Folks, it's not just happening out of context. It's happening within an understanding of God's word and God's ways that God answers prayer. But let me just tell you, there was a time in my own life where in our church family, we were under great crisis. And I still remember that hour. It's never happened before or since. But as I prayed, during that time, I even lost my appetite. I, you know, I was in a state of grieving over the condition of the congregation. I was literally fasting. Not because I had, oh, purpose to fast, but that was the burden and the grief that I was carrying to the point where there came a moment, words failed me. And as I was weeping and travailing in prayer, they were just groans before Almighty God. Now, that's not my everyday praying. That's happened once. Okay? What am I saying to you? There can come moments like this, dark, difficult, challenging, hard moments. I like the way James Thomas in his book, The Praying Christ, explains this incident. He says, here in Gethsemane, he shows not by word but by act what real prayer is. Real prayer is absolute self-surrender to and absolute correspondence with the mind, the will, and the character of God. Indeed, so powerful was the pressure on his soul that an angel from heaven came to strengthen him. But prayer with the Father was his true refuge. It was in communion with the Father that he strengthened himself. 
for the fierce conflict of the cross that still lay ahead. Interesting. The greatest thing we can do when we're conflicted, when the battle comes, when the temptation is to forsake God's purpose, at that moment in our lives, that we would start praying. I would say pray before that moment comes. I would say be prepared for that moment because you're a person of prayer, even as Jesus was. Leon Morris rightly pointed out, because of the frailty of human nature, there is the consistent need for prayer or constant need for prayer. A willing spirit is not enough. It must be supplemented by prevailing prayer. You know, prayerlessness is one of the main reasons why we get into trouble. It really is. Let me move on to the second element, how to deal with internal conflict in our souls. The first is prevailing prayer. The second is that we petition others for their support. In other words, we ask people to come alongside of us. Sharing our struggles with mature and godly people can support us with their prayers and concerns is critical. Don't you think it's interesting that Jesus said to his friends, come and pray with me. Now he's God in the flesh. He's asking for support. Who do I think I am if I just say, oh, I can handle this all by myself? Do you know, usually what happens when we're in crisis is we tend to isolate. We tend to do that. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus asked those who were the closest to him to watch and to engage in prayers. The hour of spiritual conflict was about to intensify in his life. He did this not only for his sake, but he also did it for their sake. Notice what he says here in chapter uh, 26, verse 37. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. You know, if Jesus felt the need for human support and requested it, How much do you and I need that support in the hour of our testing? We cannot make it on our own. You know, that's one of the great realities we all have to learn. You know, you can be a very strong individual, but there will come a moment when you're not strong enough. You need others. That's why we're a part of a body. That's why we have a relationship with one another. That's why I want to encourage you to develop accountable relationships. You know, men with men, women with women. We need to make our lives accountable. You know, accountability isn't something I can demand of a person. It's something I give a person. I think it'll help you to grow and get through some of the rough patches of life if you start building a meaningful, trusting relationship with someone where you can share your life with them. Isn't that powerful? Now, I'm going to just say something. I don't think you can trust everybody. You know, we can have a lot of acquaintances in life, but, you know, to find people that you can trust that will keep a confidence. You know, how many know that's pretty hard to do today? To find people who will not give you pat answers when you run into a rough patch, but will listen and say, I'll be praying. Right? That's powerful. It really is. There's one thing we need to understand as we build human relationships is the need to develop realistic expectations. You know, I think it's really sad when people say to me, well, the church let me down. I go, well, who is the church? It's people. What do you mean by the church let me down? Well, let me just say it to you this way. The best people I know will let you down. People will let you down. People are inconsistent. But that doesn't mean we should just write people off. You know, my attitude with people is real simple. You know, expect nothing, and if something comes, it's a bonus. I'm never disappointed. 
See, some of you are disappointed all the time because you always have expectations. People are gonna do this, people are gonna do that. I have no expectations. I just go, this is the way people are like. They're busy, they got these hangups, they got these problems, they got their own issues. And so if, if something comes along and somebody's nice, I go, man, that's awesome. Praise God, you know? Always rejoice. I'm always thankful for that because I don't expect it. And I don't live in constant disappointment. And some people are always disappointed. You know, why does nobody phone me? Why doesn't nobody do this for me? Just telling you the way people think. Some of you go, Pastor, you're reading my mail right now. <laughs> Matthew 26, 40, he says, Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. He says, Could you men not keep watch at me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And then he says this interesting statement, The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Do you know in verse 41 there, People have used this statement as an excuse for sinning. Come on now. Well, the spirit is willing, but the body's weak. See, I can't help myself, Pastor. The body's weak. You know? No, this was meant to be an encouragement to strengthen our resolve to do the right thing. What Jesus is saying is, look, I know you guys are willing, but what's happening is your, your human nature, your sinful propensities are, you know, just the way you're handling this situation is... The fact that you're, you're, you're allowing your, your bodily appetites to overcome your resolve to do the other. He's saying, no, you need to pray, guys. Because Jesus knew they were gonna fail. He told them ahead of time they were gonna fail. That's why he wanted them praying. Do you know, I'll tell you, if you're praying, you're not faltering. Jesus said men ought always to pray and not to what? Give up, not to faint, not to, not to fail. Prayer helps us overcome let me give you the third element here. First of all, give ourselves to prevailing prayer. Secondly, we petition others for their support. Finally, is permitting God to have his way. That's how we have victory in our lives. We allow God's will to be done. In other words, we come to this place of surrender. It's a very amazing thing in your life. You're praying, you're conflicted, you're upset, you're frustrated, and then you come to this place of absolute or sweet surrender. Say, okay, God, I'm just gonna trust you. I'm just going to believe this is the right path. I'm going to just do what you're asking me to do. I'm not going to worry about the outcomes. I'm not going to get so frustrated. I'm not going to worry about my rights. I'm not going to worry about how this is all going to turn out. I'm just going to trust you through this experience. Look at verse 20, chapter 26, 39. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Now what's he talking about, a cup? See, the Bible uses the cup to speak of a very symbolic language. The cup is what he's about to drink, what he's about to participate in. He knows he's gonna take on the sins of the world. He knows he's drinking a cup that it's bitter, it's poison. He doesn't wanna drink it. But he says this, he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. In other words, not my will, but yours be done. Isn't it interesting when Jesus taught us how to pray to the Father, he said, you know, give us this day, you know, our daily bread. No, the one just before, the petition just above that. I'm going backwards, go up one. Okay. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Man, can you imagine praying every day, Lord, your will be done. Lord, I surrender to your will. Yes, Lord, I accept your purpose. Lord, it's not about me. It's not about my grand design, my grand agenda, my grand plan. Lord, your will be done. Jesus is praying this prayer. 
G. Campbell Morgan says, and lastly in the Garden of Gethsemane, having passed outside the last limit of human companionship, I'm gonna just say this. There's gonna come a time, and it'll happen. I've, I've had these moments when it's just you. There's no one else. Even the best friends are not there for you. No one understands. You are alone. Do you know when you read the Psalms? You know, I, I read the Psalms almost every day. And I love it when I can read the thing, you and you only have I longed for. You are my refuge. You are my strength. You know, you can always turn to God. When nobody else really gets it, nobody else can enter into the depths of the sorrow, the conflict, the, the challenge, the pain, the suffering, the sorrow, I can tell you, you can talk to God. And the psalmist takes us through those over and over and over again. And even in those moments when you think, God, where are you in this mess? God, I feel abandoned even by you. You can pour out your heart to God. I stand on you alone. You alone are my refuge and my help. You alone, oh God. Jesus was there. He was crying out to the Father. It says here, having passed outside the last limit of human companionship, in awful loneliness, he looked into the heart of the great passion. That's another word for suffering, by the way. And trembling at the prospect, yet with a strength of purpose that astonishes and fills man with deep reverence, he chose the will of God. He said, I'm gonna take this bitter pill. I'm gonna drink this awful cup. I'm gonna do the will of my Father. This is not an easy road. This is God's purpose for my life. Included as it did, the emptying of this cup of all its bitterness, that he might fill it with the wine of life for the sons of men. In other words, he takes on our sin so he can give us eternal life. What a beautiful picture. How could we not love Christ? How could we not honor him? How could we not delight in him? He died for me. He died for you to give us life. The great American evangelist D.L. Moody discovered the great value of trusting the wisdom of God for his life when he shared the following. He said, spread out your petition before God and then say, thy will, not mine, be done. The sweetest lesson I have learned in God's school is to let the Lord choose for me. Isn't that great? You know what I say? God, you're so smart. You're the all-wise God. You know what's best. Lord, I think I know, but I'm, I've learned I'm not that smart. Whatever you choose for me is the best course. It may be a hard course. It may be not the course I would choose. It may not be what I want to do at this moment, but you know, Lord, it's the best course. If it's what you want me to do, I want to do it. I want to do your will. How do you know God's will, Pastor? The Word of God. Word of God teaches me what God's will is. James Thomas puts it this way. In trying to understand this, even in our Lord's life, it's necessary that this was not an isolated or sudden acceptance of um, the Father's will. Do you know Jesus' whole life went something like this? I delight to do your will. And now at the end, when the will of God became so difficult, Jesus said, okay, this isn't gonna be easy. I'm, I'm not delighting him with at this moment, but I'm prepared to do it regardless of how I feel. Jesus being fully God and fully man, it was understandable that his soul should want to pull back from this cup. You can understand it, right? 
If it were possible, he said, not to experience the anguish that this part of the Father's will might involve. Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane was, in fact, an appeal to the Father's affection and power. And in these prayers, the Lord was not for one moment abandoning the work the Father had given him to do, but he was asking, in effect, if the cross was really indispensable to the accomplishment of his mission. He was asking if the Father's omnipotence, in other words, God's power, could not find another means of effecting his will. But this request did not mean that he was rebelling against that blessed will. He was just saying, God, if there's another way of accomplishing this, let's do it. But if not, I'm prepared to go through with it. That's what he was saying. But let me close with the story. You know, most of us have heard of Florence Nightingale, right? You know, it's an interesting story. She was born of a very wealthy British family. They were kind of aristocrats. She was actually born in Florence, Italy, where they would vacation, so they called her Florence. But one of the things that she became attracted to was, first of all, God revealed himself at a young age. She became a believer in Christ, and she felt called of God to become a nurse. Now, you have to understand, in the early 1800s, nurses were considered unskilled laborers and were reportedly to be people of drunkenness and promiscuity. Now, how about that for, you know, we've climbed a long ways, haven't we? The nursing profession is not perceived that way. But at that time, it was. Proper ladies, as the Brits would have said, kept a fine house, gave parties, and made brilliant conversation. That was it. That was their role in life. But in 1844, American philanthropists Samuel and Julia Ward Howe visited the Nightingale home, and Florence said to them, do you think it would be unsuitable and unbecoming for a young British woman to devote herself to the works of charity in hospitals, and then the work of mercy, the work of helping people? And Dr. Howe replied, it would be unusual, and in England, whatever is unusual is thought to be unsuitable. But he said, go forward. In other words, do it. And she took his word to heart. But it took nine more years. Family objections had to be overcome. Meanwhile, she studied nursing, first in books, and then by visiting European hospitals. And finally, by training in Germany and England and France, she served as a director of a home for, for invalid gentlewomen. And then the Crimean War broke out in 1854. When she heard about the deplorable conditions on the front, Nightingale took 38 nurses to see what could be done. She ended up organizing the barracks hospital, including kitchen laundry and cleaning latrines. She opened windows to let in fresh air. She provided supplies by cutting administrative red tape. Most of the supplies were sitting on the dock. She either, you know, got them given or she went out and purchased them. She provided reading and recreation rooms for the patients. She rode home to their loved ones and provided a safe way for their mail to arrive home with their pay. The soldiers absolutely adored her and christened her the Lady of the Lamp because she kept coming at night with a Turkish lantern to do her midnight rounds. Her efforts brought remarkable results. The death rate, which prior to her doing this was at 42% of all casualties died, plummeted to under 3%. Just under 3%. Is that amazing? Why did she do it? Because that was God's purpose for her life. She did that in spite of all of the human pressure against her because she knew this was God's will. What are the elements to strengthen the times in our lives when our soul are conflicted with temptation, with struggle, with great decision? Like Jesus, we need to find strength from our relationship from our Father in heaven. 
We need to ask the support of godly friends and we need to submit our lives to God. So as I repeat, prevailing prayer, petitioning the support of others, permitting God to have his way in our lives is essential for spiritual victory and power to confront life's greatest challenges and overcome our fleshly or sinful temptations. Which now raises the question, are you giving yourself to prayer? Are you developing, supporting, and accountable relationships? Are you surrendering to God? Or are you allowing the pressures of this life to defeat you and to keep you from fulfilling God's purposes? Let's stand. A little more sobering message today, but I think it's going to prepare us, you know, for next weekend when we talk about Easter and the celebration and the joy of Christ's resurrection. But you know, folks, I would not be a good pastor if I did not say to you, you and I don't know what tomorrow holds. You know, this week I've been to the hospital a few times, visited a man who this might be the last, you know, season, the last moments of his life. You know, you never know when tragedy strikes. You know, I was listening about that airline catastrophe in Germany. You know, one man who was emotionally disturbed locked the pilot out, the co-pilot goes up, takes all of these other people down. Do you think the people in that little village in Germany were prepared for that? I don't think so. Not for most of them. They're just like in a state of shock. They're overwhelmed by sorrow. They're overcome by grief, right? You know, and the news is like, you know, bloodhounds there. They're just all over this thing. Isn't that true? What am I saying to us? I'm saying, prepare your soul. I'm saying, you and I need to learn how to pray. You and I need to take steps so that when crisis comes, we don't fall apart. That's what I'm telling you. Amen? Just every head bowed. I want to pray for us as a church family.